Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, tonight's story revolves around themes of suicide and includes descriptions of violence against children. 
If you or someone you know is considering suicide, I strongly encourage you to reach out to the Crisis Lifeline, accessible by dialing 988 on your phone. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm Eric Peabody, and I'm going to be minimizing my usual horror host persona a bit, because tonight's tale requires a more serious introduction. This evening, we're going to be reading the story, I Should Have Been a Pair of Ragged Claws, by J.R. Hamantaschen. As you heard earlier in the disclaimer, this story is centered around a suicide. While that in itself is something that I know can be very impactful to listeners, there is also a great deal of time spent inside the mind of that character, as well as those close to him, both before and after the event. This is an extremely personal look at this subject, but it doesn't solely focus on desperation and delves into themes of cruelty and selfishness that can be involved with suicide and the effect that it has on others. All of that being said, I personally feel that this is an incredibly well-written tale and, in some ways, is one of the most horrific stories that I've presented to you during my time hosting Horror Hill. If this content is something that you feel you can stomach, I invite you to join me as we enter this very real nightmare. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head over to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you don't happen to still have all of your organs, do you? And now, from author J.R. Hamantaschen, I present... I should have been a pair of ragged claws. Evelyn knew that her son Jerry always liked birds. They were his first fixation. Every parent remembers each of their child's first fixations. So at a young age, he would prattle on, almost mechanically, about the capacity of a crow to remember a human face, how ravens could mimic human speech, how owls ate their prey whole. He hadn't used such sophisticated language, of course. The precise way he expressed his love for the creatures was lost to time. When he turned twelve, she bought him a parakeet, or a budgie, as Jerry insisted they were properly called in their native Australia. How smart he was, so said the teenage girl behind the counter. Of course, they had to buy a parakeet for Andrea, their nine-year-old daughter, because fair is fair and pledged to get one for Kyle, then six, when he got old enough to take care of it, an offer he never redeemed. Was Jerry happy with the blue and green budgie that his parents, after some resistance, allowed him to name Bruno? Hard to tell. Maybe, for a bit. He admired Bruno, enjoyed taking him out to fly around the bathroom, giving him food sticks and watching the bird peck. When Andrea was going to have her bird fly around the bathroom, that's when Jerry needed to let Bruno out too, 
and he liked to play Bruno's bodyguard, saying, Hey, hey, hey! and separating Bruno with an oven mitt if Bruno and Andrea's bird, a bright yellow thing she named Oscar, nipped at each other. Jerry seemed most engaged when the opportunity came to intervene. But Bruno would peck at Jerry sometimes, and Jerry reciprocated with inanition, letting the bird go too long without food or water or cage cleaning to the point that he became the family bird, until Jerry promised his mother he'd be more responsible. Jerry, from then on, fulfilled his obligations dutifully, by all appearances, although the frequency with which he'd take the bird out lessened each year. How to account for why Jerry remained so abstractly interested in birds, and less so with a real article? As if he had been found out in something, he expressed his interest in birds less and less, although the same could be said, as he got older, about all topics. So... Imagine Bruno broke free from his cage and flew around the household right now, if the poor wheezy bird could still fly for so long. What would he see as he went from room to room? Evelyn bawling, screaming and gnashing, her husband Patrick holding her, so frustratingly stoic. Bruno would see Andrea, now fourteen, and Kyle too, now eleven. And what would he see of them in their unguarded moments? Relief? Indifference? The bird would notice, perhaps with some pleasure, that Jerry was nowhere to be seen. Would the bird intuit what it saw? If so, would it feel a satisfaction at the calamity, at the grief, payback for his lonely nights shivering in Jerry's room, payback for his inapposite name? No. Sweet Bruno, of course not. Why would it enjoy Evelyn's despondency, the woman who oft cleaned him and would give him a food stick, or Andrea's anguish, the girl who let Bruno flutter about with another of his kind, or Patrick's brittle attempts at maintaining some semblance of composure? Would Kyle have any evident emotion that required deciphering? Is it worth discussing the other members of the family, their passions, their pursuits, the trajectory their life was taking up to this point. No, not now. Bruno would fly out, leave this family to their grieving, much as we will now. It's too grueling. Because Jerry, at the age of 17, on the cusp of graduating high school, is dead. He killed himself without even whatever quantum of closure might be provided with a suicide note. Let's check back. It's been a month. When she'd found him, Evelyn had made sure to knock several times. You always had to knock several times because Jerry relished privacy and expected that preference honored. Evelyn would give languorous, patient knocks, enough time for Jerry to stop whatever he was doing, assemble himself. Patrick would give one or two solid knocks that doubled as commands. Andrea, hers were rapid-fire, impatient knocks in quick succession, the knocks of someone never eager to approach. Kyle's, respectful if unnatural knocks, timid, with deferential pauses. Evelyn had knocked enough. Opening the door and finding him hanging there was the equivalent of watching him kill himself. It all came in a rush, 
she could see it in the afterimages. The plummet, the tensile arc of his swing, his tongue squirting out in an almost comical grimace, so strange to see that enigmatic face of his so definite, now so unchanging. In some versions of the imagining, there was an exaggerated crunch-crash of his neck snapping, instant death, better than some alternatives she saw, his desperate, futile kicks to right himself back on the stepladder. To deepen the wound, she thought, despite herself, that to witness those kicks would have been perhaps the first and only time she'd ever seen him zealously try to do anything. And what a jerry outcome, wasn't it? Hopeless failure. Who would have thought you could tie bedsheets to the motor housing of a ceiling fan? Jerry was a skinny boy, but certainly he weighed too much for the fan to withstand. But, grimly, guess not. You can't argue with results. She had never imagined him capable of displaying such physical ingenuity to tie such a stable knot, execute such a plan. He was never a Boy Scout, had worn Velcro sneakers until he was ten. This is too much. We need to come back after some scabs have formed over these wounds. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. My problem is, if I had to sum it up in one issue, is I know I have problems, but I don't value myself enough to do anything about them, I guess. So I continue to suffer, but won't do anything about it to lessen my suffering, because I always feel like, what's the point? Jerry said, months before his eventual suicide, as he leaned on his elbows while sitting atop a wooden table in the park, staring into the dreary, cloudy middle distance that lay beyond his outstretched feet. Graham nodded solemnly, standing behind the table, that makes sense, and isn't uncommon, unfortunately. This sounds terribly cliched, and I know how you hate cliches, but some cliches are cliches because truth bears so much repeating. No one hates us as much as we hate ourselves. Jerry blinked, 
and then, realizing he was being looked at, nodded. But some people truly deserve to feel the way they feel. Maybe the suffering, the self-hatred I feel, I deserve it. Graham looked thoughtful, a slight bob to his head, as if he had to let the speaker know that every sentence uttered in his direction was independently analyzed and computed. If someone was truly disliked by many, many people, essentially a type of pariah in their community, it would behoove them to better understand why that was. There's great wisdom in a crowd, especially as it comes to why a community of people reject someone, which, to a healthy-minded person, should indicate that there very well may be something about themselves they need to change. We know all about the wisdom of a community, after all. Jerry signaled his agreement. But for you, Jerry, the hatred is internal. Your trouble is a self-imposed isolation and loneliness of pushing people away, not of being actively rejected. You know that. We've talked about that. The reason you do that is because you think you're better than other people, smarter than them. You value intelligence, you recognize your own intelligence, and find the mass of others lacking, and that causes you to devalue them. Jerry bobbed his head again in agreement, the movement helping to conceal his involuntary eye-roll. He'd heard all this before, although he recognized its truth. But there was something to be said about novelty. Let me ask you, Jerry. Why are you sitting on top of the picnic table instead of standing here with me? Jerry looked back over his shoulder at Graham, then looked again toward the chilly, unused playground. Before he could ready a response, Graham placed the tips of the fingers of his left hand to his temple and prognosticated. Let me fancy a guess. Okay, you do that. Good. This would save Jerry the effort of having to think of something snappy to say. First, sitting on top of a picnic table in a park, that's something you aren't supposed to be doing, and there's something you like about distinguishing yourself, even if there's no one else here because you are still doing something you aren't supposed to be doing. Second, your stance. I see you adjusted yourself to be leaning on your elbows, a kind of cliché, casual, bad-boy stance, which reinforces your own perception of yourself as outside the ordinary. And from your elevated position, it's almost like you're looking down in disdain. And third, or maybe more like as an added bonus... Instead of facing me, you're facing that playground that's not being used, which I am sure reminds you of the ticky-tack, dreadfully boring suburban environment you can't wait to escape. Waiting a beat, Jerry asked, Done? So how'd I do? It was more that I just didn't want to be seen walking around with a middle-aged man. For your own protection, you know. Doesn't look good. Graham laughed. Jerry adjusted his position, first sitting up, then descending from the table altogether. He was perceptive, this Graham. Jerry didn't like the feeling of being summed up and explained. It made him feel diminutive, reduced. Even if it wasn't entirely accurate, it appeared accurate, and that perception of accuracy made him feel self-conscious, especially not when there was an undeniable grain of truth more than a grain, really, more like half a bushel of truth. But there was much that Graham was missing, and Jerry didn't want to invite continued probing. 
Now that Jerry was off the table, Graham came over to him and, with his typical brio of homey, comfortable atavism, shook Jerry's hand. I want you to stick around, friend. There are reasons for you to stay. Your life is important, and so are you, even if you don't believe it yet. You aren't going to kill yourself. I won't. Say it. I want to hear it from you. Jerry smiled cavalierly. Graham pressed on. I get it. Us depressed people hate sincerity. But still, you know the drill. I want to hear you say it. You know I won't kill myself. No one knows anything. That's the point of this, as you know, of us meeting, of us all meeting together, our community. It's important. I know it is. It isn't easy finding you all, as you know. We know. That's intentional. Yeah, you're only for the doomed cases, the tough ones, the SWAT team of suicide prevention. Graham bellowed a laugh, a genuine laugh that revealed, in hindsight, that his previous laugh rang a bit hollow, a bit forced. I like that. Well, you're still here and you haven't tried anything since, have you? It wasn't framed as a question. I haven't. So we're doing something right. I'd tell you that we've never had a member of our support group relapse. I'd believe that, for sure. But I don't like saying that, because I feel like it might have the unintended consequence of encouraging someone to be the first. You know us. We all think we're so unique. Jerry made a face to suggest he understood. If that ever happened for that reason, well, then you'd have to reevaluate your admissions committee. As they left toward Graham's car, Jerry looked back at that ticky-tack playground and both admired Graham's perspicuity while resenting his conclusion. This town was fucking lame, and these people within were, for the most part, stupid, vain, and fundamentally sloppy in their emotions and intellect. They lacked possession of themselves, and it greatly depressed him to have to go out and function in their world. Well, he had Graham here and the others, his online companions, that formed his band of brothers, which at various times assumed the roles of emotional support group, philosophical debate club, or simply his other world he could lose himself in. That wasn't nothing. Sure. It's now approximately three months after Jerry's suicide and something like the new normal has settled upon the family. As a family unit, they attract that aura of attendant sympathy wherever they go, whoever they talk to. They could fail to bring a gift to a housewarming party or foodstuff to a potluck, or forget to pick someone up and no one would dare say anything. Not that Andrea took advantage of this, but she could fail to hand in an assignment and have an accepted excuse at the ready. Everyone processed things differently. No one wanted to go to therapy. Evelyn wanted to scream at them to do so, if only because that's the thing you're supposed to do. She wanted to grab Andrea by the hair and scream at her for never getting along with her brother, even though no one got along with Jerry, and Andrea's approach toward him, reactive, tentative, wary, had been empirically sound. Was that true? Did Jerry not get along with anybody? He'd had friends when he was younger. 
He could be sharp-witted and clever when he wanted to be. He was a smart boy. He read a lot and spent all day on his computer and playing video games and had friends online. She'd seen him, heard him, talking with people on his headset while playing some shooting games on his PlayStation, and she figured that some communication was better than nothing. The youngest, Kyle, that non-entity. Truth be told, equal attention can't be paid to every child. Kyle had always stayed away from the Jerry-Andrea drama, never had any opinions, didn't want to get involved, silently and unshowily did what was right and what was expected of him, acquired the appropriate interests and temperament, as if just enough to keep appearances without attracting scrutiny. With his silence and withdrawal, Evelyn sometimes just imagined him literally counting down the days until he could leave. He shared that with his departed brother, the feeling that behind closed doors he'd let out a big sigh of relief and pursue some interests he deigned to keep to himself. Evelyn wanted to curse her husband, his temperament being so quietly reasonable and grounded, his refrains of, what can we do? And that nagging feeling that he had processed this was further along in the healing process and, worst of all, his unflagging, infuriating patience. It was as if her dedication to this emotional wretchedness and profound hopelessness at the loss of her son was the talismanic proof of her love and was somehow deserved recompense for all the things she hadn't properly done. She didn't poke and prod and investigate enough. She didn't shape his development enough. She wasn't engaged enough in his life. Wasn't that it? Why else would a 17-year-old... One who never had to worry about money, who wasn't being physically or sexually abused, who had nothing to escape from, do such a thing. By not wallowing alongside her, it was as if her husband was agreeing that the burden of the shame was properly allocated among the deserving parties. But what are you supposed to do? You can't be a helicopter parent. Was it worth it? For her to have kept her distance, fearful of Jerry's every dismissive, unkind word? Was it worth it, her submission in the face of his recalcitrant refusal to reveal? Was it worth it, avoiding those eye rolls, the worst thing she thought he could ever do with his eyes, until she found them jutting, distended, and now literally lifeless? Apparently, even in death, she couldn't avoid his look of ghoulish judgment and disdain. That neck cracking, those eyes positively lunging from their sockets. It was approximately one month later, and Andrea felt frozen. She knew she needed to proceed carefully. Evelyn, after sitting on the couch next to her under some pretense of small talk, had just asked her if she knew any of Jerry's friends at school she could talk to about him. Mom had wisely and immediately broadened that request, saving Andrea from the awkwardness of letting it dawn upon Mom that Jerry truly didn't have any close friends. Mom had, of course, been at the funeral. None of the kids from school who attended could honestly be described as Jerry's friends, in the classical meaning of the word. Family friends, Andrea's friends, Kyle's friends, people who casually knew Jerry and paid him no mind. Sure, many of them knew Jerry and had nothing bad to say. Of course, 
who could say anything bad at a funeral. But likely, there was nothing conceivably bad they could say, because Jerry kept to himself. Was there anyone? Mom insisted. Anyone Mom could talk to who... The obvious explanation was that Mom was still, and perhaps forever would be, riddled with guilt. Andrea blanched, sensing a dismantling of the assumed understandings that separate parents from children. It was almost frightening. Parents provided guidance and made the rules, and inherent in that guidance was the expectation that it would be exercised appropriately. That Mom's request was so transparently a bad idea chilled Andrea to the bone. This was someone she loved, relied upon, and trusted. And that the mother she loved and relied upon so much could be so wrong was a very harrowing thought indeed. So tenuous was the stability that kept the family unit functioning. She imagined no food in the fridge, the family phones cut off due to lack of payment, her mother on the corner of her bed, knees to the chest, rocking back and forth, babbling to herself. I can try and find out, was the best Andrea could offer. Mom smiled weakly and placed her hand warmly on Andrea's face. Thank you. Andrea saw then the stable, competent mom she knew, and Andrea smiled back, as if forgetting that this wasn't the first time that mom had pursued this doomed inquiry. Mom, so competent, only wanted to hear that Andrea understood and would help, and that would be enough. That mom then asked what Andrea wanted from the grocery store confirming with her that she'd get Andrea's requested mozzarella sticks, tangerines, and crunchy peanut butter, furthered that impression, because here was normal mom discussing normal, healthy mom things. In the parking lot of the key food, after the car was turned off and she should be getting out, Evelyn found herself instead unable to move, hands wrapped tightly against the steering wheel, seeking to bend it. She unclenched her hands. What was she doing? She was a self-possessed, analytical woman. She was frustrated, and in quixotically rending the steering wheel, there was that primal satisfaction of physical exertion, of directing that bottled energy elsewhere. Andrea couldn't be relied on to look into anything, Evelyn knew, because no one can be relied upon to do what you want to be done with the effort you require other than yourself. But such activities weren't fruitful, she knew. Just think about it. Look at yourself in some imagined third-person perspective. Is this a healthy approach? To sit parked in a key food parking lot, death-gripping a steering wheel while some geriatric townie gives you the side-eye as she pushes her shopping cart full of canned soups and cranberry juice or whatever the fuck to her SUV? No. Of course not. The uncontrollable thing about terrific loss is that the weight of it can creep upon you so impassively, so surreptitiously, and then suddenly it's occupying your gut, your heart, so solidly and so completely. The reality of her son's death, so very briefly forgotten beneath the muddle of her pep talk, reasserted itself with total primacy. Your son is dead and that fact won't change. 
Psych yourself back up all you like, but that fact reigns supreme. Still, she got out, fighting through the tears, believing somehow they'd stop because they had to stop, because people didn't cry going into grocery stores. Through the misty veil, she acknowledged, remotely and distantly as if observing it on behalf of someone else, a great black shape speeding toward her from her periphery. She paused, instincts taking over, took a colossal gallop backward as a black SUV seemed to swerve toward her. Her heart in her chest, she heard no honk, no screech of tires, became only aware of, bizarrely, some different old biddy with a crown of soft white hair, silently putting her hands to her half-open mouth in a classic look of shock. The driver of the black SUV only seemed to regain control of its momentum as it pulled toward the curb to exit the parking lot. Evelyn stayed put, caught her breath, felt the onlook of strangers and sensed the shaking of their head, intuited the murmurings of, Can you believe that? In an alternate world, she thought subconsciously, where Evelyn had ended up splattered in the key food parking lot, there'd be at least one good-hearted woman who'd speak truthfully and honestly to the police about what she'd witnessed. And then reality reasserted itself again, and she clenched her stomach, dreading that old biddy coming over to her and asking her if she was all right. And to think Evelyn could cry and emote, and that innocent, beautiful woman would think it was because of the outpouring of pent-up relief from that close call with the SUV and how lovely it would be to pour out all her feelings upon someone who knew nothing about her. Evelyn realized with dread that, with the throat-clenching drama gone, what else could she do but go into the store and get her family's groceries? You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Jerry had shaken hands with all four of them. Graham, he knew, of course. Each of their meetings had ended with a handshake. Graham's belief that tactile exchanges had a stabilizing, grounding effect, like a commitment until next time, the assumed pledge that there will be a next time. 
In a sense, he knew the other three also, but had never met them in the flesh before. The man he knew online as Acer was Stephen, probably the closest to his age at 24. Bizarro was a well-kempt, fit, but otherwise anodyne middle-aged Eric, and Mobius was a nondistinct Dan. They'd all traveled some ways to meet Cherry, and, while he was convinced he was intellectually indifferent to social expectations, in reality, his palms were sweaty and his heart was racing. He was already accepted, he told himself, but with online interactions he could be collected, calibrated, an expression of pure intellect. Online, he could be charming, comforting, and stimulating, as many a cyber-sex partner could attest. But with physical presence came concerns about appearance, his ego, his haughtiness, or just his inherent alien otherness that couldn't be camouflaged. But if any group of people should understand, it should be them. I've been thinking for a while before this meeting... Jerry began and had the temptation to bail on the opener, but he was locked in now. That it'd be ironic if the sheer pressure and anxiety of a meeting like this would be the impetus for a candidate to off themselves. They all smiled and laughed. Ever think of that? That's never happened before, although I guess that's something new for us to have to worry about, said Eric unseriously. Well, with how our system works, I don't think we need to lose too much sleep about it, said Stephen, smiling. With our terms, our people have to be pretty committed, so don't get any ideas, buddy. You can say whatever you like about how extreme it all is, but one thing you can't deny is that commitment is kind of baked into this whole enterprise, added Dan after a pause. You can say that again, was Jerry's knowing contribution like he was an old guy commiserating with his friends about the same old shit, the weather or untrusty politicians or other common pablum. Funny how he hated himself for that comment. Guys all shooting the shit with pitter-patter, the supposed comfort of group acceptance, the strained and forced overreactions and smiles to the banal, the rituals of small talk. Funny, this suicide support group Certainly the most dedicated and capable such group that ever existed always reminded him of his inescapable exhaustion with life. Not out of high school and already saturated with embitteredness, he couldn't imagine ever being free of it because the disgust and the tedium was part of, baked into, to borrow Dan's phrase, the whole enterprise of social interaction. This support group might have worked better if it remained entirely online, although with the type of commitment entrance to its inner circle needed to make, he could understand the idea, at least, about meeting in person. He bet all these guys thought he should be impressed with the sacrifice they were making and traveling however far they traveled to come meet him. He should reflect graciousness, which they should expect, but not overdo it. In conniving, he forgot the clambering, awkward parts of himself. Graham, as Jerry's ambassador of sorts, made eye contact with whoever was speaking throughout the meeting, and, as everything was going cordially, mostly nodded, sagaciously and deeply, in concert with everyone's points, redoubling his efforts when it was Jerry doing the speaking. When the expected lull came... 
Jerry spoke passionately about how the group's support had helped him, had kept him alive at his darkest times. Jerry paused, correcting himself to explain that to describe it as darkest times was misleading, because that implied one distinct low point, when the truth of the matter was that he lived perpetually at the low point, like a little crab scuttling around the bottom of the seafloor. If I think about it intellectually, which I do often, ruminating endlessly and obsessively, and here the others chuckled, because of course they knew what Jerry meant, I still come to the same conclusion. I don't, intellectually and objectively, think there's any reason to live. I don't believe in God or heaven and hell or a higher power. And of course they all knew he wasn't saying anything that they all didn't agree with. But still, I remain here. I persist, if you will, with your help, this group's help. And that's an act of faith, in a sense. I'm not my thoughts, but separate from them. Meditation, self-reflection, exercise, obligation, commitment, tethering myself to reality, faith in action. And I can't... I can't necessarily intellectually validate why this should work... But I suppose results speak for themselves, and I find it interesting, and I'm still here. And, after Jerry finished, they again all chuckled, because again, he wasn't saying anything they themselves didn't daily struggle with and struggle against. Process, Stephen started, after a dignified pause. That's what it is. You understand it's a process. You do the process, your thoughts, destructive thoughts at least, subside and you feel better. It is a type of faith, as you say, but faith with results. You don't argue against it, you just accept the negative thoughts as what they are. Thoughts, only thoughts, separate from yourself, that come and go randomly, like waves in the ocean. Stephen spoke solemnly, as you couldn't be too doctrinaire in explaining anything to the congenitally suicidal, who, by temperament, were skeptical and dismissive. It's when you think, I can't live with myself anymore, that helps to articulate the tension, how, in a sense, your thoughts are separate and apart from who you are. When you think that, who is the I and who is the myself? You commit to us, and you do what's expected of you, and over time, it gets better. Stephen's comments about thoughts coming and going randomly like the waves in the ocean bothered Jerry, because while Jerry didn't know the exact science behind it, certainly waves didn't appear randomly, but were caused by the wind or the moon or temperature differentials or some shit like that. But he suppressed the rising heat he felt, and when he spoke about the group prolonging his life, the words came easily because what he said was all true. Or, said in another way, had he not found this group, he would have killed himself some time ago. Sunday, and the family was making a day of miniature golf. It was that odd type of outing that hovered between obligation and recreation, one that no one seemed to want to partake in, but for no good reason. Kyle was withdrawn, his usual fear of failure that now extended even to missed putts. Andrea was more outgoing recently and spent more time with friends, which Evelyn hated her for. 
as if Andrea's years of proximity to Jerry had been whittling her away, and now she was unencumbered by the burdens of her deceased brother, refreshed and rejuvenated for other people. Evelyn kept half expecting Andrea to start wearing more revealing clothes, because isn't that what teenage daughters do when they're acting out or spreading their wings or sending a message? And it almost angered Evelyn that Andrea wasn't doing so, but was rather perfectly well-adjusted and, just maybe, was only responding rationally to the absence of someone who had made her life largely disagreeable. It was as if Jerry was no longer here to express his thoughts about Andrea's vapidity and simple-mindedness, and with his departure, Evelyn, out of some misplaced loyalty, stored his thoughts in her mind. Evelyn could not remember one loving interaction between Andrea and Jerry. The only peaceable ones had been those occasions when they had been forced to sit in near silence beside one another perhaps in a car ride or a school function. But that was childhood, wasn't it? And, Evelyn told herself, it would only be in the years to come that Andrea would learn that she'd lost out on the prospect of a deepening adult relationship with her brother. Patrick, had recent events not imploded their family, would prefer to be at home watching football with Kyle. Evelyn ungraciously suspected Patrick course-corrected to spend more time with all his family to keep the peace. She felt ashamed at her suspicions when she'd glimpsed the way Patrick laughed at one of their jokes, or the appreciative pride when Kyle let his guard down and joined in for a laugh. The miniature golf began rigidly and awkwardly, as if they had been forced to play to oblige someone else's expectations. And, in a sense, this sentiment wasn't incorrect. But they loosened up with their successes and miscues. Kyle's modest embarrassment from an absurdly great putt. The natural comedy of Patrick's patient approach being rewarded by his ball careening into the water. Their bated breath and Andrea's yippy shriek when Mom's ball was scooped to the side by the twisting windmill. By the third hole, the atmosphere was loose and genial. Andrea loud and smiling, Kyle unshowily and quietly pleased with his skill. Kyle ended up winning, with Andrea a distant second, dad and mom close thirds and fourths respectively. Evelyn wondered if Patrick partly threw the game to make that so, and joked to herself that he may have well gone all the way and let her beat him. Hot dogs and chicken tenders for lunch afterwards at the shop on the premises... Everyone, Andrea especially, tacitly understood that this was no time to be complaining about junk food. Andrea, who had recently been avoiding fried foods and carbs, ate her chicken fingers with particular relish. No one complaining about fat and salt made for a happy family. Patrick and Kyle lollygagged as they all made their way to leave. Patrick coerced Kyle into getting some frozen Snickers with him, with Kyle countering that, if they were going to bother to get ice cream, they should at least get something they couldn't just easily make themselves. Somehow, that became milkshakes, with Andrea and Evelyn oofing in protest as they patted their stomachs and walked slowly away, waiting around for the boys to get their treats. "'Have a good time?' Evelyn asked her daughter as they stood waiting, half distracted by the nearby presence of the parked cars. There was something wistfully sad about packing up the day and heading home. 
Evelyn hoped there was something transferable in the family dynamics that had opened up today. Already, Evelyn saw, Andrea was looking away and down at her phone. Andrea looked back up. Of course, Mom, it was fun. I was pretty good at it. Who knew? You have many talents. And who knew Kyle was a golf pro? Yes. Is there a golf team at your school? It would be a few years until Kyle went to their high school. I have no idea. I doubt it. I mean, where would they play golf unless they went to some course or something? True. Evelyn caught herself doing that mom thing, finding one possible interest or aptitude her son displayed and poisoning it by school marming it into something careerist or scholastic, or a subtle indication how he should be more social and outgoing. Nothing ruins an interest like dragooning it into the service of responsibility. Bringing up school, the world outside right now, depressed her, and she would not mention it again. Evelyn saw the boys, lips pursed, eyes closed in ice cream inhalation, returning with their shakes and, letting them have their own time, walked a few yards apace with Andrea toward their car. Do you want a shake? Evelyn asked, not knowing why, as Andrea had already said she didn't, and, even if she had, Andrea wouldn't inconvenience everyone by going back and ordering. I'm good. And this time she didn't look up from her phone when she answered. Evelyn kept her eyes on her, just enjoyed looking at her, a bit unnerved by how quickly and efficiently she typed away whatever message she was sending to whomever. Imani is having boy trouble again, Andrea said, as if intuiting that mom wanted to hear something further. Imani was one of Andrea's longtime friends, a pretty, smart Arab girl whose most noticeable feature was her deep-set eyes, always well accentuated with eyeliner. Also, Imani didn't drink, which might be a good influence. Evelyn liked Imani, imagined she was chaste, and wondered how boys tolerated chasteness and sobrieties these days. Oh, that's too bad. Evelyn found her keys and purse and turned toward the boys and their energized movements, where Kyle with a whitish, pukey substance on his jacket, was being dragged backward, Patrick lunging at the two men that were pulling on their son. Now, she saw the soaring gash on Kyle's throat, the man closer to Patrick fending him off, as the other man, undisturbed, descended something like a penknife again and again into Kyle's throat with short, sharp, unrelenting jabs. With each stab, each puncture into her youngest's neck, Evelyn felt something split open in her stomach, the mounting certainty that she'd lost another child. She saw Patrick's back in three-quarter profile, but now he leaned forward in a way that indicated he was now concerned with himself, despite his son being butchered only a few feet away. She saw his hands go toward his abdomen, and he stumbled backward, and she didn't see Andrea in her periphery, but filled in an image of her just now raising her head from her fucking phone as her brother lay torn and frayed and essentially neckless on the ground. Patrick backed up into the road where there roared a screaming vision of a shape, a car she'd seen somewhere before 
a car that her husband propelled atop of and over, and now he lay there in the road, his black jacket the relatively undisturbed lid on something blasted and broken underneath that she knew she couldn't bear to turn over. If her husband hadn't been recuperating in the hospital, Evelyn would have insisted they move out of town immediately. Miraculously, Patrick wasn't in a coma, didn't suffer any brain damage, only, only, a broken leg, a shoulder fracture, two stab wounds to the stomach that pierced no vital organs, and a panoply of superficial cuts and bruises. Could people say she got lucky that Patrick hadn't died too? Is that what people could conceivably say she should be thankful for? Could people say that to her with a straight face? Would people dare, now that her youngest, too young and sheepish to have shed his essential innocence, was dead, throat torn out while holding a half-filled styrofoam cup? What she had thought was whitish, foamy puke on her son's jacket was actually the contents of his swallowed milkshake, released out of his slit throat onto his jacket like a little baby with a messy bib. The little baby he still truly was, and now would always remain. She wanted Patrick to tell her who did this to them. He wished he could tell her, but he'd never seen them before. One might have been middle-aged, the other might have been younger, and they were both fair-skinned, although one may have been darker white. He wasn't sure it happened so fast. Fucking Patrick always had to be so honest and law-abiding and rule-respecting. So he told the police the following, as if this changed anything or would lead to some break in the case. But he saw something like remorse in the brown eyes of the man who stabbed him. How remorseful could they all be when, a witness revealed, the license plate of the car which had struck him was intentionally covered up with a blurring sheet? And when the police asked what, if anything, these men had said to him, Patrick just had to tell them the truth, that he was sure one of them had said, unironically and with some exasperation, that he was sorry. A random, violent attack, so seemed to be the operative theory. Just pointless words, words that never took root glided harmlessly along the surface of her brain like water striders across a pond. They were leaving town, was all she thought. Even if it had been entirely random, some impulsive crime of opportunity, even where the opportunity being seized was still a mystery, losing one son to a suicide and another to street-level butchery was evidence enough that the town was cursed, or, if not the town, their family was the virus that brought out some latent, violent overreaction in the town's antibodies. And either way, they needed to leave. Jerry lay flat on his bed. It wasn't good to be lying in bed in the middle of the day, he knew. That was a classic sign of depression, and he wished he was only depressed. He improved to something like depression. It was when he was only depressed that he wondered where this seething cauldron of righteous hatred came from. 
Perhaps he should request that his brain be donated to science so it could be studied, and maybe there could be better treatment for people like him in the future. That premise assumed, of course, that the problem lay with him and not the world, the very nature of existence. And that likely had to be true, because most people functioned, operated, and reproduced, and were not like him. His ennui was so deep that he convinced himself it would be too much effort to request that his brain be given to science. What does that even mean, to science? It was the type of imprecise thinking, putting the responsibility on others, that he loathed. It was too much work, he thought to himself, with knowing provocative irony, given the elaborate plan he'd already put in motion. It was in these moments of what might be called reflection that he thought to himself that it must be him. There must be something truly wrong with him. Did other sociopaths know they were crazy? Does a man who rapes the corpses of dead animals while wearing a Burger King mask and nipple clamps ever look in the mirror with post-orgasm clarity and think, Jesus, maybe I am fucked up. He'd passed judgment on existence and found it wanting, but he was part of existence too. That sentiment would lead to nothing, to drifting along, but maybe drifting was better. How could it be that, objectively and existentially, life didn't matter, yet it was still worthwhile devising a revenge that he wouldn't be alive to witness? Was it some kind of intellectual satisfaction, that clicking into place of the last piece? And what if he were wrong? But this cessation of hatred was only temporary, and only when he was alone. Proximity to others would remind him of their inherent selfishness, wastefulness, petty cruelty, misplaced priorities, vapidity, intellectual torpor, and the millions of little hypocrisies that he refused to partake in. Even thinking made it all come bubbling back. Still, he cried. Maybe just the sudden interruption of this placid state of reflection with this rekindled throbbing indignation was too much for his emotions right now. Sobbing like a little boy on his bed. If mom were home, could he call out to her? Would she come comfort him? She'd leap at the chance. No, he could never do that, because who wouldn't wonder and worry about their malfunctioning sociopath of a son crying without understandable cause on a weekend afternoon? Nothing in life was unequivocal or unconditional except God's love, which he admired as a sustaining ideal, but knew was nothing but petty impetus, hollow faith for hollow minds. He hadn't asked for any of this. The self-loathing turned the corner nicely into hatred, which had the benefit of at least being goal-directed and, strangely, reassuring. Yes, that old guiding emotion. He actually looked up the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and thought that, realistically, would make a good place to send his damaged brain. Got a private glee imagining writing, Send Brain to Science something totally daft and innocent, maybe remind his family of the little naive kid he'd once been. He thought more about mementos he should leave, 
Little breadcrumbs that led nowhere, led round and round like a flushing toilet. He thought about penning a suicide note comprised solely of the lyrics to Nickelback's photograph or some other garbage. He got to work making one such memento, and when he was done, stuffed it deep in the bowels of his sister's closet. Greedy, unappreciative slob. She had so many clothes she never wore or kept track of, she'd never even notice. Andrea didn't know how best to tell her mother. It felt somehow like she did something wrong. Vacillating wasn't her style, and she wanted to be unburdened of this responsibility as soon as she could. Andrea peeked around the door to her parents' bedroom, where Mom was laying down, reading a book, an assortment of multicolored plastic containers lining the walls, shelves open, clothes and papers abound. Mom, I, uh, found something in my closet you might want to see. Dad had been back home for the last month, and they were packing up and moving out east to make both their lives and their realtor's life a bit easier. Okay, was all Evelyn said in response, and followed Andrea, both in silence, as if both wanted to minimize all facets of this interaction as much as possible. Dad was winding things down at the office, but even if he'd been home, Andrea would have gone with this directly to Mom. I, uh, sorry, was the first thing Andrea said, as the door stuck on the clothes and other contents piled en masse in her room. Holy hell, Andrea, you have enough clothes to clothe a small army. Evelyn could map out the evolution of her daughter's tastes in the clothes on display. I remember that strawberry shirt. I didn't know you still had it. You wear that pear shirt still. I didn't know you had that strawberry shirt. Just a couple more fruit shirts, and you can be a complete fruit salad. I wear this shirt sometimes to sleep in, said Andrea, picking the white and red t-shirt flecked with juicy red strawberries with green curlicues. But it's a little too frilly on the sleeves. And she rubbed her frills swiftly as if proving her point. The pear shirt is classier and a lot warmer, too. It's long sleeve. As long as I never see a peach shirt... I know what that means. Mom, ew, she said dryly, not without a sarcastic love in her voice. Don't ruin fruits for me. Andrea pointed at the eight and a half by eleven inch gray moleskin notebook. It was on the floor by itself, just beyond the entryway where her largest closet began, a distinct, almost dignified island of repose among the mess of clothes and papers and trinkets. It... I'm pretty sure it was Jerry's, Andrea stated the obvious. I found it all the way, like, buried in the back of my closet. I... I moved it up here. It was really deep down there. On the inside of the front page, it says Jerry on the top. Good clue that it was Jerry's, Evelyn said quietly and smiled. Yeah, and Andrea smiled back each smile after each quiet word a reassurance to one another that this was an awkward situation and they were each proceeding as best they could. Did you read it? Evelyn asked. No, absolutely not. I knew it wasn't mine. I never kept a journal, I don't think, not even for school. 
but was curious and just opened the front page and saw Jerry's name. Thank you. Evelyn took the journal, held it in her hands with a pinched face, overcome with a feeling of oppressive weightiness, hugged Andrea and thanked her again. Andrea was visibly relieved to be rid of it. You know we care about you, Jerry. I know you loathe hearing things like that. Of course. And I know, look, we're both guys, yada yada yada. So I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, why do we have to say all this bullshit? I get it already, but... No, no, I get it. But just the absolute level of the commitment we've all made. That's why our system works. We have truly committed ourselves to the struggle to the struggle to live, and that's why we... I get it. That's why we take this so seriously. You promise never to kill yourself, and it's a promise not to be too dramatic about it, made in blood. You understand the consequences if you ever kill yourself. You stay alive for others, so this makes that literal. I understand the consequences and accept them. This may sound weird, but I actually like knowing there are actual, extreme consequences. Suicide isn't a selfless act anyway. You aren't the only victim of your own suicide. Anyway, isn't that what they say? This just, uh, makes that more literal and less poetical. I kinda like how the stakes are just made so high. You don't tempt fate, you don't fuck around when the stakes are so high when the danger is so clear and present. Evelyn lay in bed with the journal, her heart racing. She took a sip of water, enjoyed turning her face from the book, just sipping water, normality, refreshing. She turned the journal again and on cue, her heart again started racing, palms sweaty. How Jerry would have hated her reading his personal journal. Maybe she shouldn't. But that was a farce, because it would only be a matter of time before she succumbed. And she was his mother, and he was her dead son, and she had the right. Intermingled with her panic was the shame at struggling with the premise that he was the sort of person to even keep a journal. Had someone told her that her son wrote in a journal, she wouldn't believe it but here it was. The obvious question, and the obvious opportunity for self-reproach, what else did she not know about her son? She combed through the journal, each turn of the page a new pang of guilt at each fresh violation. The pages were blank, and as she turned came the disorientation, both the mounting fear and strange relief that each page might be completely blank. Something more than halfway through, though, on the top of a page. The reason why, with deep-cut underlines. At the bottom of the page appeared the outline of small, cramped words, arranged with some obvious care and structure, heavily crossed out. She strained to pierce through the morass of black ink that hid her from the most sought-after truth, but it was impossible. The treasures that lay beneath were marred and disfigured beyond repair. But hope, an inkling of a miniature arrow in blue ink, an instruction to turn the page, 
more blanks. Blank, blank, blank. And her heart sank lower and lower. But again, another little blue arrow. This one at the top of the page, and her heart soared. She was literally salivating unknowingly, head swimming in a clammy fog, eyes burning with overstimulation. She found text, scanned it, and then rocketed through the rest of the empty journal. She backtracked, a finger for a bookmark where she found text, and then went back through the journal more methodically, enough times to understand that this found text was, somehow, all there was and all there was going to be. It read, I can't live with the cognitive dissonance of being attracted to a shapely ass and then remembering that that's where shit comes from. An artifice. This was an artifice. She knew without accepting, unwilling to take the psychic leap into what conclusions that would bring. But before structured thought came... Evelyn somehow knew that Jerry's suicide caused Kyle's murder, and that more death was coming. Jerry looked at the single sentence of text he'd written in his journal for his family to find. Somehow, this was crueler than the rest of the plan, and for a blistering moment, he truly hated himself. Although, that was fitting in a sense, wasn't it? because he knew he was defective. In time, he'd get over it and stow it away in his sister's closet to be found after his death, for his family to stew and mull over, or perhaps they would understand the comic absurdity, the pointlessness of it all, and find it a fitting tribute to their troubled son. If any of them were left, that is after he'd found himself able to both eliminate his family and these foolish suicide prevention cultists in one fell swoop. He'd get over it and stow it away and continue with the plan, wouldn't he? Because that's who he was. He was stuck in the spider web of time. Always bored, always anxious, always restless, for what he didn't know. Always doing nothing, yet somehow always fatigued, never satisfied. Always waiting, it seemed, for a resolution that would never come. For just something in his brain to click. Some element to appear so he could finally understand and feel the simple pleasure of a sunrise or friendship or travel or food. And then he could think, oh, that's what people see in this and look back at his desolate years with a hearty chuckle. But never. This grinding through the gears of time was perpetual. And that was life, wasn't it? He hated life, and anyone who didn't hate life was, in a sense, an enemy of his. For they enjoyed it somehow, and because he experienced life as it really was, he'd always be, not only unhappy but a despised outcast, his existence itself an offense to the established order. What was wrong with him? The thought came again in a moment of clarity. Where did this resentment come from? Was it just being born with the name Jerry? A party animal name? A hippie ice cream purveyor name? Given to someone born wanting nothing to do with the act of living? That was as good a theory as any, 
and he thought of replacing his existential poop joke in the journal with some riff on that. He'd been right, right again. The hate engine revved up once again, and, on what ended up being a few days before his suicide, he hoped his suicide group's incompetence permitted his family to stay alive long enough to find his gift. You've been listening to I Should Have Been a Pair of Ragged Claws by J.R. Hamantaschen. J.R. Hamantaschen is a writer of short stories, having released several collections, including A Deep Horror That Was Very Nearly Awe, with a voice that is often still confused but is becoming ever louder and clearer, and You Shall Never Know Security. J.R. also co-hosts a horror podcast called The Horror of Nachos and Hamantaschen. You can find collections of his work at Velux Books, www.veloxbooks.com. Well, listeners, I'll be honest with you. I'm not quite sure how to follow up this tale and close out this episode. At the very least, I'd like to thank J.R. Hamantaschen for writing such a deeply unsettling story, and also would like to thank Velux Books for granting us permission to read it to you. Again, if you or someone you care about is having thoughts of suicide, I strongly urge you to reach out to the Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 on your phone. Next week, we'll be returning with something a bit less serious. After all, variety is the spice of life, as they say, and we have to get good and ready for Halloween, don't we? Thank you for joining me this evening, and until next week, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's fear from the heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. 
If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you are after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.